year, decided to take some time and talk about what it means that uh, that we are, that we aim to be, that we want to be a grace-centered church. Uh, we started that last week, and what we saw was that there are really there are really just two religions in the world. Um, one one religion can be characterized by uh, by a clip I saw from a movie that. I don't think it's out yet. Maybe coming out soon, but it's called the Secret so- Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Uh, maybe you've seen the uh, the trailer for this. I kind of want to go see the movie because um, I like war movies. Um, and so this, what I'm about to say, doesn't, of course, denigrate any of the actual. Uh, doesn't, of course, say anything about the movie or denigrate the people who fought in it. But there's a clip from the preview where one of the where one of the characters says. Well, I'm just going to do my, if I do my best, I think God will take care of me. I'm just gonna, I'm, if, I just, if I just do what's right, then I think God will take care of me. Uh, and that is the default religious mode of mankind, right? That if, I just, that if I just do right, if I just do, if I just do good, if I just do what I think is good, then God's going to take care of me. But how do you know that? On what are you basing that opinion, that religious assertion? Because that's a, that's a pretty big claim, and you, you better be sure that that kind of attitude is right, that if you simply do what you think is good, that God's going to take care of you, you probably ought to have something to undergird that. And it also raises the other question, what is good? Who establishes what is good and right? Who makes that call? probably don't need to remind you that all that Adolf Hitler did, he did because he thought it was good and right. And so we have to ask the question, what is, what is good? And so if you're going to put all your eggs in that basket, if you're going to go to sleep at night saying, well, as long as I just try to do good, God's going to take care of me, uh, I hope that your sleep is a little bit unsettled. All right, but that's the that is the religion of the world, and what it, by whatever name it goes by, whether the, whether or whether it's atheism and no religion at all, you draw your contentment from what it is that you do, from your own works, from your own doing. That's all the other religions in the world, and the non-religions too. And then there's Christianity. Right? If the motto of the, other, of, of the other religion of the world, by whatever name it goes, the, the motto for this one is, God helps those who help themselves. The motto of Christianity is, God helps those who cannot help themselves. And that's what we saw last week from Ephesians 2. But we even read it. Uh, we read it today as part of our assurance of pardon. It's what Paul says in Romans 3, if you want to... Look there quickly, Romans 3, start reading in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no 
human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what Paul is saying is this. The, the, The law is not intended to make you feel good. Right? You don't... If you come away from the law and go, huh, 8 out of 10, that's passing. That is not what the law is intended to do, right? I remember coming home as a young man and um, coming home with a report card and showing it to my dad and saying, I got four A's. And he says, all right, but you took five classes. I got four A's and one B. And you know what my dad probably said next. What happened with that B? That's what the law says. That's what the law does. The law says, what happened with that B? You, got, you, na- you think you nailed 8 out of 10. What about the other two? The law, with the knowledge of the law, comes the knowledge of sin. Paul goes on. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned, all have missed the mark, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing that we're saying when we're aiming to be a grace-centered church is that what we have, if you you are in Christ, all that you have comes by grace and not by works. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The beginning... In the end of our salvation, come to us out of the grace of God, not of our works. And this is where the tension comes in. Paul addresses it in Romans, and actually he addresses it in a few other places. But most, most directly in Romans 6, he's preaching the grace of God so forcefully that he anticipates the objection that comes. And, and you feel it in your own heart. When you hear, I'm saved by grace and it's nothing that I do, you want to object. Well, surely there's something, right? What, what Paul says in Romans 6, the objection he anticipates is, um, so where sin abounds, grace abounds. Well, Paul, if that's true, then I need to sin more so that I get more grace. And he says, that's not what I'm saying. And he goes on. But there's this tension, right? There's this tension that we feel that when we hear, really, saved by grace, free grace, it's not of your works, then we say, well, then how am I supposed to live? If I'm accustomed to doing good to get good, then what am I supposed to do now? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to address that tension today, and we're going to, go, we're going to look at it in Philippians 2. So if you would, turn to Philippians It's stated in lots of different places, most succinctly stated here, and so that's why I chose this passage, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Paul says, Therefore, 
My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, and now the preaching of your word. Father, that it would be faithful and true. Father, that my preaching would accord with what your word says. And that you would bring about spiritual change and renewal through it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's what I, here's what I believe Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is teaching. Uh, and it's this. The grace of God, here's what we're going to hear today. The grace of God that forgives your sin is the same grace that enables you to fight your sin. So the grace of God that cancels sin is the grace of God that enables you to conquer sin. Because, and, and this, is, this is incredibly important, when I, and I think I said this last week, but when I, when I came to the faith or when I began, when God began drawing me, what I thought and what I had heard from my youth growing up was Jesus breaks you clean, right? He, he kind of settles the score, makes it even, and then you need to keep your nose clean so that you don't lose what Jesus has purchased. That is not what the Bible teaches. It is not, you are not on your own to fight sin. Not only does God give the grace that makes us alive, but he even gives the grace that enables us to fight and strive for holiness. Let's see, um, let's see how Paul fleshes that out here in Philippians 2. Just a, a little bit of context. Paul says, therefore. Uh, Paul has just written this hymn in verses 1 through 11 about what Jesus has done in being obedient to the Father. So, In his obedience to the Father, he submits himself. He takes on the form of a servant. He's obedient to the point of death. And as a result, God exalts him and bestows on him the name above every name so that everyone will glorify Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, in light of that, in light of Jesus' obedience, in light of what Jesus has done, my beloved, my friends, my children in the faith, You've always obeyed. So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul is in prison. He would like to come back to Philippi. He would like to see his friends again, but it's possible that he won't. He's established his church. He loves them, and he wants, to, he wants them to persevere. He wants them to continue. And he, so he says, you did a great job while I was there. While I was with you, mentoring you and pastoring you, telling you how to live, you did great while I was there. Keep it up. Continue to obey. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And here's how he says it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so here's the first point. We are called to work out. Which means the life of grace is not a sedentary life. You know what sedentary means? It's, it's, the, it's the politically correct term for the couch potato, right? Uh, sedentary, seat, seating, 
right? Um, the, the life of grace is not sedentary. It is a life of working out. For somebody like me who doesn't like going to the gym, that may not be good news. But it's a life of working out. Now, you here work out your own salvation. Kevin, you just told me that I don't contribute any work to my salvation, that I am saved by grace. You even read me two passages from Romans and from Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul where he says as much. Has Paul gone crazy? Is he schizophrenic? Is this somebody different? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? What is going on? Is Paul saying something different now that he's saying, work your salvation? No, nothing has changed. Uh, Paul can't be saying now that we earn our salvation, especially because in Philippians 3, he's going to be saying right the opposite, that it doesn't come from our work. So what is he saying? <clears throat> and this is maybe where our modern day doesn't do us a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of good. If you've been around the church for a long time, maybe the way that you understand salvation is what God did to forgive me. So uh, that my salvation is simply the forgiving of my sins. But that is not the way that the Bible talks about salvation. Salvation is actually a whole process. It begins at justification. That's a word the Bible uses as a church word, but let me define it. Justification is when God declares us righteous. That would be the forgiveness of our sins that many of you may be familiar with. That's the beginning. And then the end is glorification, when we are made perfect and fit for heaven. So salvation is a process that begins with justification, really begins with our election before that. But as far as we are concerned, justification, and it ends in glorification. And then there's the middle part. That's our sanctification. And this is how we can define that, right? Um, sanctification is the ongoing work of God where we become less and less captivated with sin and more and more captivated with God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So, that's what Paul is talking about. He hasn't changed his mind. Nothing has changed. It's not that you earn your salvation. Salvation is still by God's grace alone, and we'll look at that in a second. But Paul is saying that there is something, there is a role that you play in this middle part. And here he calls it, he says, work out. To work at something implies effort. Salvation by grace does not mean that you are left in the dugout and that you have no part to play. Salvation by grace actually leaves you on the field. How do we work? Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, awe and reverence, not arrogance and apathy. If you are in Christ, God is your Father. You are adopted into the family. Your identity has changed. You are a son and not a slave. And because you are a son and not hired help, 
you can come before God with awe and reverence. He is, he, he, he is not your slave master. If you are in Christ, God is, God is your father, but he does not work for you. He is your father. And so remember, uh, if, you, if you have a good earthly father, remember the best characteristics of your father. You did not treat him, hopefully, with indignation, with apathy. Well, at some point you probably did. Uh, and he responded, right? And so what, what Paul is saying is that God is not your hired help. He does not live for you. And so your posture before him is one of awe and reverence, fear and trembling. The fact that he gives salva- salvation by grace alone... Uh, it means that we respond to him in worship, not with indifference or carelessness. And so we're called to work out, to work at, really, to work at our salvation, to bear fruit. And if we don't, the Bible has lots of terrifying warnings that if your life does not bear the fruit of, of God's grace at work in you, if your life does not bear fruit, if you don't abide in the vine then you are not one of his. Matthew 7 calls us to examine ourselves, to examine our lives. And when I look at my life and when I, when I inspect for fruit, the task seems impossible, the warning seems terrifying, and if I'm left to my own, it is. So how do I do that? How do I work at my salvation? Paul keeps going, and it's the second point. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because, the, the root, the cause, because it is God who works in you. So our work, so we are called to work. We can acknowledge that. The Bible is clear. In the meantime, before we get to heaven, we are called to work. And our work is enabled by God at work within us. Our work is enabled by God's work. We can work because we have another at work within us, even God himself. And this is the most important thing for us to understand about the Christian life. Because I can slip back into that default mode. Right? And even, even what I feel like I was taught as a, as a kid, I have been saved by grace... But now I have to secure it by works. And the Bible says, no, you don't. Just, just hear what we sang when we sang Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So the work of Jesus is a twofold work. Not only does it cancel sin, but it provides what we need to conquer sin, cleanse me from sin's guilt and power. Um, growing up, I really hated in PE. We had to do the mile run every year. I hated the mile run. Um, just not a naturally athletic guy. 
I was a chubby kid growing up, and so the mile run was the, my least, well, PE was my least favorite class, and the mile run was probably the, the pinnacle of that disfavor. So, um, but later on in life, I started jogging, and I, and I began to learn some things about myself. Um, I, I learned that I liked exercise, and it made me feel good, so that if I accomplished, if I could actually jog, if I accomplished running, I felt good after the fact. The problem was in the middle. The problem was the area of motivation. And what I realized was, and it took me a long time to realize this, if I didn't know how far I was going, then I would give up really quick. Like I would just start running with a plan to run for 20 minutes. And I would, you know, like the legs would be burning, the lungs would be like, give up, stop. And so I would stop and I'd be like, that had to be like 12. And I would look at my watch and it was like two. <clears throat> then, I, then I found Map My Run. This is a website and now it's a, an app. This was before the days of apps. Um, but Map My Run, what it allowed me to do is I could go to my computer and start at my house and I could map the route. So if I wanted to run three miles... I could map a three-mile route, and it would even show me on the map where mile one was and where mile two was, and, of course, where I would finish, hopefully, would be mile three. And I realized that as soon as I had something external to myself, as soon as I knew how far I was going to go, I could run. Because so, what would happen is this. I would be running for all of two and a half minutes, right, and my legs would be burning, and my chest would be heaving, and I would be sweating, and, I, and, and everything in my body is saying, stop. This is really hard. You're a doofus. Stop it. Walk back home. What are you doing to us, right? That's what everything in my body is saying. But in my mind, I knew where the mark was. I knew that if I could just get there, I would have I made the goal. And so in the same way, Christian, you are not on your own in this race. You have something different from you, and actually it's internal to you. I needed an external motivation, but in the Christian life we have an internal one. It's God himself, the Holy Spirit. He's at work within us, pushing us onward, giving us what we need. When everything else is saying, stop, holiness is hard, stop. Obedience is hard. Stop. We have the Holy Spirit within us saying, press on. Because of what Jesus has done, you have God's power at work in you as you fight sin. How does God work? Back to Paul. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So he works he provides the will. He provides the desire. He provides the drive. He changes our want-tos. And he gives us new want-tos. By God's grace, we become people who want to please God. I want to see my sin die. And I want to see God's righteousness flourish. And you know that this is true. You do not do anything that you don't want to do. Kevin, 
I do a lot of things that I don't want to do. I don't want to mow the grass. Aha! But you don't want the grass to also be neck high either. And so that's what's called deferred gratification, right? That, that you suffer in the meantime for a goal that is in the distance. That's the difference, hopefully, between a 6-year-old and a 36-year-old, right? That we do things in the meantime that we necessarily don't want to do for the goal that we want. And so I use that just to illustrate the point that you only do what you want to do. And so if you are going to fight sin, if you are going to strive after holiness, which is what the Bible calls us to do, then you're going to need a will that wants that. And what Paul says right here is that will comes from God. He gives us the very desire to chase after, right, to pursue. And so he, he provides the will, and he also provides the work. So think about this, right? What Paul, what Paul is saying here, God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure Let's contrast that with you aiming to be religious or good on your own. Uh, it's somewhat like, it's like powering your house with a nuclear reactor versus pedaling a bike in your living room. You might be able to generate some electricity if you do it that way, but it's not going to get you very far. It probably won't even toast your bread. That's the difference. Right? What, what Paul says is you have a nuclear reactor within you con- that you are connected to, giving you the power to work. So our works are a product of our wills. He, he gives us the will. He gives the work. To what end? For what goal? For his good pleasure, his delight, his good purpose. The Christian life is hard. It's classified in Scripture. It's, de- it's described as a fight, a boxing match. Uh, it's described as a battle. It's described as a race, something that you must press on to finish. Those aren't easy words. But God's delight is in it. God's delight is in the fight. God delights just just as I love it, as I, I am delighted in my sons when they are generous with one another. I am delighted when my sons are kind to one another. So the Father delights when we do the hard work of obedience by the power of His grace. And He gives us everything we need to do it. And apart from that, you're on your own. You're on your own against powers too great for you to handle. All right, so there's, there's those two parts. Let's talk about what this looks like. Let's get really practical. Um, let's go to Ephesians 4. <clears throat> and in case you're, unfam- if you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, and maybe even if you are, you'll notice that all of Paul's letters are written this way. The first part of the letter, all he does is talk about what God has done in Christ. All he does is talk about, this is what God has done. And then the second part of the letter is, here's how you respond, or here's how you live. So, um, all all of the letters, all of Paul's letters anyway, are split between what you are 
to think and believe, and then how you are to live in light of that belief. So here's how, uh, here's how that works. We looked at Ephesians 2 last week. Here's some of those instructions from Ephesians 4. Let's, the, the whole chapter really is about the unity and the peace and the purity of the church. So let's start in verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So let me trace Paul's argument really quickly. What he is saying is, in a sense, if we go, if we're, especially if you're a member of Ephesians 2, don't walk the way you used to walk. In fact, you've been given a new walk. Walk in that. Paul is saying, this has been done for you. Now, walk in it. It's time to put off or take off those old worldly clothes and put on what you've been given in Jesus. And then he just goes through a series of putting off and putting on. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So put off lying. Because of what Christ has done, you can put off falsehood. You don't need it. You don't have to deceive people to get your way. Put off falsehood and instead put on truth. Speak truth to one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so before, where you were angry and you took it out on people, or you just gave them the silent treatment and you didn't pay any attention to them, Paul is saying, well, now your anger can be transformed. You can be angry and not sin. You can be angry about, about important things, what God is angry about, the unrighteousness and evil in the world. Be angry and don't sin. And don't let the anger, don't let anger fester. Because when you do that, you just give a foothold to the devil to hurt the church. This one, I think, is particularly useful in illustrating the point. Let the thief no longer steal. So put off stealing. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Let him work, doing honest work with his own hands. All right? So if I'm in Christ, I don't have to steal. That was the old way. And I I think it's pretty interesting that in the church you had people who used to be thieves. I mean... How many people would be comfortable describing themselves that way in this room? And yet these are the kinds of people that are in this church in Ephesus. And Paul says, no more. No more stealing. But the law of God is not primarily negative. 
or it's not only negative. The law doesn't just say no longer steal, but also work. Do honest work with your own hands. Put off stealing, put on work, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So did you see what happens there by the grace of God? The thief, the taker, becomes a giver. Paul doesn't say, stop stealing and work hard so that you can have a fat 401k. Nothing wrong with a fat 401k necessarily. But he says, stop stealing, start working so that you can give, so that you can share. So the grace of God transforms the taker into a giver. Flip over to Galatians 5. comes right before Ephesians. Just to give another example of what it looks like for us to work out our salvation. Because here's the, here's the thing. I, I think sometimes we can define the life of holiness, the life of working out our salvation. That clock needs a battery. Sorry. Uh, we can define the life of salvation, the life of, of holiness, in terms of how many times we read the Bible or how often we pray. Uh, And what the Bible says is that there is a delight in the law of God uh, and that we are to pray without ceasing, so those are there. But you'll notice when you read the New Testament letters and how they talk about the Christian life, most of the time, maybe even all of the time, it's in our relationship to each other. So, So religion is meant to be lived out. So we are not to narrowly define obedience as, well, I read my Bible three times today, I'm good. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a complete life transformation that is practically worked out with other people, and that's, you know, a whole other series of sermons. Galatians 5. For freedom, this is verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Galatians were in danger of going back under the law. And Paul says in the next few verses that if you do that, if you try to embrace circumcision as some way of keeping the law and keeping Jesus, you will lose Jesus. You do not need the circumcision and the law. So for freedom, you were set free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's see, I lost my place. Here we go. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So the freedom we have that we are given in Christ shows itself in the way that we love and serve one another. That's, at least in Galatians, what it means to work out your salvation. And the New Testament is full of these instructions. So, we are saved by grace, and it is a grace that works in us as we work. I used to say that the Christian life was a two-step dance. Repent and believe. Every day, 
Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And then recently I came across a series of sermons uh, where the pastor redefined it. He said, actually, it's a waltz. It's a three-step dance. Repent, believe, and fight. All three of those are necessary. We are called to all three. We are called to turn away from our sin. We are called to faith, to trust in Jesus. And coming out of that, we are called to fight, to fight sin. And we have the power to do it by God's grace. So the question is, maybe the question is, am I working or is God working? The answer is yes. You're working. You're both working. By whose power are you striving to live? Are you striving to live on your own power? And in that case, then religion is merely just a coach. Just gives you a pat and sends you out onto the field to play like a, like a little leaguer facing off against the New England Patriots. Good luck. That's, that's religion on your own. But if you're striving to live by grace, then the game is won. The enemy is defeated. You're a, you're a third stringer going in to finish off a blowout. You may lose a few yards, but you're not going to lose the game. So fight, run, win. You've got, the, you've got the power of God at work within you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that saves. And we thank you for the grace that works. That works within us both to desire and to do your good pleasure. For your delight. You delight in us. Father, I pray that we would not aim to run the race alone, but we will run it in vain. I pray that we would trust in you, in what you have done in Jesus, and what you are doing with the Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And then sing.